Good morning, Chapel Hill. It's good to be back with you. As you saw on my blog yesterday, I've been doing a lot of traveling the first part of this uh, year, and I'm so grateful, as always, for the bench of great preachers that we have that, that uh, pr- proclaim God's Word every week. So thanks for my colleagues for their good work. It is uh, really good to be back with you as we launch into a new series called Instagram Jesus. So we're just going to check out your social... I did this first service. It might be a little different here. I want to see how socially hip all of you are, okay? So if you are on Facebook, let me see your hands up. If you are on Twitter, hands up. If you are on Instagram, if you are on Snapchat, if you think that Facebook means a pictorial directory, raise your hand. <laughs> if, you, uh, if your idea of, uh, of a pro- good program is a, a paper calendar with a pen, uh, raise your hand. Anybody here? About half of the... There we go. <laughs> so, um, it is... Uh, it, you know, it's, it's actually too bad that there weren't some uh, iPhones in the hands of Jesus' disciples. Because wouldn't you have loved to have a, a YouTube of, of the Sermon on the Mount as Jesus preached that for the first time? Wouldn't you have loved to have a picture of Jesus as he calms the storm or as he walks on water? Wouldn't you have loved to see a video of Jesus as he touches a leper with rotten skin and suddenly his skin is restored? Wouldn't you have loved to have a, a clip of, 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 of Jairus' home when they were inside in the inner room and Jesus reaches down and touches his dead daughter and raises her back to life? I mean, it would have been very handy if there had been a disciple at the time of Christ with an iPhone in his hands. Alas, it was not to be. But the next best thing that we have to an Instagram account is the Gospel of Mark. And that's what we're launching out of. We're calling it Instagram Jesus. Mark, of all the four Gospels, Mark is the one that's most, uh, that's, that's fastest moving. It's, it's shortest. You have clips of this and clips of that and clips of like the one image of Jesus after another and it can hardly keep up with it. Um, it, uh, it is one of my favorite Gospels, actually. And I want to give you a little background on it. John, Mark was written by a guy named John Mark. And he was the son of one of a bazillion Marys in the New Testament. You wish they'd spread the names out a little bit because there's so many Marys, lots of Marys. He was the son of a Mary. They might have owned the room where the disciples shared the Last Supper, as a matter of fact. So John might, as a young man, have been hanging out with the disciples a little bit. But the first time he really makes his appearance in the, the New Testament is when he's invited by Paul and Barnabas to join them on the first missionary journey. Remember that? John Mark. For reasons that we do not know, he abandoned ship early on and returned back to Jerusalem. Well, the next time they were ready to go out again, Barnabas said, come on, let's give the boy another chance. And Paul said, no stinking way. He, he betrayed us. He abandoned us. I don't want to have a thing to do with this kid. And as a result of that, Paul and Barnabas actually went their separate ways. They were separated. We never see them together again. Turns out, though, that Barnabas was right and Paul was wrong about this kid. Because in the very last letter that Paul ever wrote, Second Timothy, when he's awaiting his own execution, he writes, Would you please send Mark to me, for he is very useful in my ministry. Isn't that wonderful? In the end... Barnabas was vindicated. Mark was, in fact, useful to the Apostle Paul. He's also pretty handy to us. Mark is the first guy that actually wrote down in the New Testament an account of the life of Jesus. It goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but it's not chronological. Mark is the first guy. 
In fact, we know that because Matthew and Luke both have big chunks of the gospel of Mark included in their gospel, even though sometimes they they tweak them a little bit. And what's interesting is it's not really Mark's own recollections of Jesus. When we are reading Mark, do you know whose voice is behind the gospel of Mark? Yes, it is Peter, the apostle Peter. Ancient historians tell us that Peter told young John Mark, his secretary kind of, to write down the stories that he remembered about Jesus. So we could just as easily call this the gospel of Peter as the gospel of Mark. Let me tell you a few things about Peter slash Mark's gospel. First of all, it moves at a breakneck pace. One of Mark's favorite words is immediately. Say that word, immediately. It appears 41 times in the gospel, 11 times in the first chapter alone. He just moves at a breakneck pace. You remember the the Roadrunner cartoon? You know, and he dashes here, and then he dashes there. And that really, that is how Mark uses the word immediately to see us dashing from one scene of action to another, to another. You can hardly keep your breath. I got in trouble when I was in college in a music class for screwing around. And the professor called me into his office afterwards and said, do you have attention deficit disorder? And uh, that was before it was kind of a thing. Uh, Maybe I did. Maybe I was a pioneer. I don't know. But if I do, or if I did, it might explain why I like Mark. Because uh, if you have a short attention span, the gospel of Mark is the book for you. A little bit of chunk, man, and it goes uh, a long way. So over the next few months, we're going to blast our way through a big chunk of the gospel of Peter as told to young John Mark. Are you up for that? Are you up for that? All right. Mark starts uh, with John the Baptist. Uh, All four of the Gospels actually have an account of John the Baptist, but Mark leaps right into the story of John. Uh, You heard about that from Pastor Ellis uh, last week. Uh, Ellis reminded us that he's called a voice, the one who was a voice in the wilderness preparing the way. And we are told by him and the other gospel writers that, that scads of people were coming from Jerusalem and Judea for miles around to come and hear this crazy looking guy named John who was preaching about repentance and to receive the waters of baptism. But it was on the day when a, a carpenter from Podunk, Nazareth showed up to be baptized by John. That was the day that everything turned. And that was the day that this carpenter began to light this world on on fire. So I want to turn to that story in Mark chapter 1. You can turn there if you wish or you can just listen to it. Mark chapter 1 beginning verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and he was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water... Immediately, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit immediately drove Jesus into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals. 
and the angels were ministering to him. Now when John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is the word of the Lord. Holy Spirit, would you come down upon us again anew this day that these words might be your word, that our lives might be changed. For we ask it in the name of our precious Lord Jesus. Amen. I believe that every uh, person called of God goes through a cycle in their life. And it's a repeatable cycle. It happens more than once. And it is a cycle that represents our invitation to follow Jesus, our preparation to do that which he calls us to do, and ultimately our launch into the ministry for which we were created and gifted and for which the Holy Spirit came upon us. This is a cycle, I think, that is repeated again and again in human experience. And I say so because it has been my own experience again and again. And even more to the point, it was the experience of Jesus himself. Christ himself went through this experience as we saw it captured in our story today. This cycle, I think, could be summed up in three words. Call, crisis, and confirmation. Would you say those words with me, please? Call, crisis, and confirmation. And so we're going to take a look at the call and the crisis and the confirmation that Jesus experienced in our story. Many years ago, when our daughter Rachel was about four years old, we read this account, this story, at the, at the, at the dinner table. And afterwards, I thought I would put her to the test. So I said, Rachel, who was it that was out in the wilderness? She said, John. I said, what was John doing? He was baptizing people. I said, what happened when Jesus came? And she said, he threw him in the water. <laughs> and uh, really, when you look at Mark's account, that's a pretty good description of it. If you want more of the details of the baptism of Jesus, you're going to have to go to Matthew or Luke or John because there we find John preaching. There we find the argument going on between John who's telling Jesus, I'm not worthy to baptize. And Jesus says, I got to be baptized. I'm not worthy. And back and forth. If you want to see that, you're going to go somewhere else. But all Mark basically tells us is Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and John threw him in the river. But he tells us a few more things that are really quite powerful. For instance, the moment that he comes out of the water, we are told that he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him, that is on himself, like a dove. And, and I want you to imagine that for a moment. If you were standing outside following service and you looked up into the sky and you saw the heavens being torn open, that would be a pretty impressive sight. It is a very violent word, actually. It's a ripping, a rending, and we are given the impression that it is God who's doing this. He's God, it is God who's tearing the heavens apart. Actually, it's not the last time we hear this word. We hear it again, in fact, at the end of the same gospel. I know you remember this story. When Jesus breathed his last on the cross, there was a great curtain in the temple. It was a curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the, of the temple. And the moment Jesus breathed his last, we are told that that temple curtain was torn, was ripped, was rended from top to bottom. It's the very same violent word. And you suddenly realize there's a theological principle behind this that Mark is telling us. From the very beginning of Jesus' ministry to the end of Jesus' ministry, he starts and he ends it with God tearing apart the barriers that separate us from him. It's a, 
It's a powerful image, isn't it? And so the story begins with the rending of the skies and the descending of the Holy Spirit dove and, and a voice that comes from heaven. Listen to the words that fell upon Jesus' ears in that moment. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. There's only three times that God the Father speaks in the New Testament, and this is one of those moments. Twice, basically, God says the same thing. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Twice when God speaks, it is a voice of blessing upon his father, uh, upon his child, his son. And dads, I want you to pay attention to this because this is a powerful principle. There's something powerful about the blessing of the father over his children. There's something inexplicably powerful that happens when a father says over his son, over his daughter, I love you and I am so proud of you. You may believe it, you may think it, you may try to express it, but man, when you speak it, it unleashes something in them that causes them to grow, that causes them to swell. And you can never be too old to do this, dads. Your son, your daughter can never be too old to receive it. If it's been a while since you've said to your daughter, to your son, I love you and I'm so proud of you, you go home, you call them. Say, I've been thinking about this today. I am so proud of you and I love you so much. You have no idea, fathers, the power that you possess in those words of blessing. And think about it. If Jesus Christ needed to hear from his father these words of affirmation and blessing before he was launched into the life for which he was prepared, how much more do your children need to hear that from you? You go home. You bless your kids today and never stop doing it. I love you. I'm so proud of you. This was the moment of call for Jesus. This moment of the rending and the, the dropping and the, the pouring out. This was his moment of call. And you might say, finally, he's been waiting 30 years for this moment. He grew up quietly in little podunk Nazareth. He was a good son, a, a, a good sibling. He cared for his mother. He took over his dad's carpenter shop. He, he, he treated his siblings the way he should. You know, he, had, he just bided his time. But always there was this longing to get launched on the thing for which he had come. And this is the moment of call. When John heard, when Jesus heard that John, his cousin, was in the wilderness preaching away, he knew that moment had come. And so he made the 90-mile journey from Nazareth and came down and find John. He stepped into the waters. He said, baptize me. And when, that, when he came up out of that water, that was his moment. The moment had come. Shakespeare once wrote about this when he was writing Julius Caesar. He said, there's a tide in the affairs of man which taken at the flood leads to fame, to fortune. In other words... There's a moment in life, an opportunity, when the tide comes in and, boy, you better be ready to sail your ship out because if you do, it's going to lead you to the destiny that awaits you. But if you don't, Shakespeare says, it goes on to say, then that ship will be bound in miseries and shallows. You'll be stuck in mud. You don't want to miss that moment of call when it comes. And Jesus was ready. He was chomping at the bit and he was ready to launch. There's not a soul in Christendom. There's not a soul here today who's not received a call, a beckoning, an invitation from God. Not one. That first invitation comes when Jesus says to you one by one, will you follow me? 
Most of you have said yes to that, but there might be some here today who would say, I've never even responded to that call. Jesus is saying, will you follow me? The other ways are folly, and they will lead to miseries and shallows. Will you follow me? But beyond that, every person who says yes to Christ, there's another call. And beyond that, often several, in which he says, now, now that you've said yes to follow me, I'm going to equip you. I'm going to empower you. I'm going to fill you with my Holy Spirit. I'm going to prepare you because I've got a job that you alone are suited to. And if you will say yes to that, I'm going to launch you on a destiny that will be eternal. So will you say yes to that too? That is our moment of call. And I wonder how many men, how many women who would call themselves followers of Jesus still, when they reach that moment of call, that moment of destiny, they find that they're unable to pull the trigger. They stay tied to the dock because they are fearful or uncertain or too stingy or, or whatever. And it is a missed opportunity. I want to ask you, do you who are Disciples of Jesus believe that God has called you to something great for your life. To what great purpose does he intend to launch you? Pay attention to that. Don't miss your moment. After 30 years, Jesus finally gets his call. 30 years. And it was in a powerful way, wasn't it? It was very dramatic. It was miraculous. And so you wonder, so what's next? What's next? I got the call. I've been dunked. The Spirit has come down upon me. Here I go. What's it going to be? Maybe it's a mini preaching tour around Galilee just to warm up his preaching chops a little bit. Or how about a, a kind of a, a tiny experiment, a experiment in some healing? There are a lot of lepers to go around. Something spectacular would be an impressive way to, to launch into this ministry that he has finally been called to. Jesus could almost, you almost sense that he was kind of chomping at the bit, ready to go. Jesus is saying, okay, spirit, uh, what is it? Where is it you're calling me? And where is it that the spirit calls him? Into the wilderness we read that the very next thing is that the Spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness. Jesus might have been saying, wait, what? i I just been baptized. I've just been anointed by the Spirit. I'm ready to rock and roll. The Spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness. This is the first time immediately appears. First of 41 times. I actually think it's noteworthy here, though. You kind of want to say, couldn't Jesus just bask in the glory of that moment? I mean, this was his spiritual high point. Couldn't he just kind of drink it all in? Maybe have a little baptismal party with some cake and ice cream. But there's no basking to be found. We are told immediately on the heels of his baptism, he goes into, into the wilderness. And how does he go? We are told the Spirit, what? drove him. Do you see that word? That's not a very polite word. That's not a word that you expect from the Holy Spirit. You expect the Holy Spirit to be a little more genteel. The Spirit invited Jesus into the wilderness. The Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. The Spirit wooed Jesus into the wilderness. You don't expect to hear the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness. And yet, that is exactly the language we read. And why? To be tempted by the devil. To be tempted by Satan for that purpose. Now, this is very typical of Mark. He doesn't give us any details about that temptation, or not hardly any details about the temptation. 
If you want to figure out how many temptations there were, and if you want to read about how Jesus moved from this place to that place to the pinnacle of the temple, if you want to hear how Jesus dramatically pronounced, be gone, Satan, and that was the end of it, you're going to have to go somewhere else. Mark doesn't fiddle with that. He just says he was in the wilderness. He was tempted 40 days. Animals were there. That's kind of cool. It's the only place we hear about the animals. Angels were ministering to him. That's, that's about all he tells us. 40 days is something worth noting. Every time you hear 40 in the Bible, what it means is a long time, a long stinking time. So Noah's reign fell for 40 days. Uh, Elijah hid from Jezebel for 40 days. The Israelites wandered in the wilderness for, for 40 years. Jesus goes from a blessed moment of call, of consecration in his baptism, a moment to 40 days of crisis, 40 days of temptation, 40 days of, of struggle. So we ask, what is going on here? Did God cause this crisis? Did he bring this crisis upon him? I mean, it does say that the Spirit drove him out. Or is this Satan just trying to trip up Jesus before he even gets out of the chute? And of course, the answer is yes to both of those. Both of these things are true because it is absolutely true that one of Satan's favorite tricks is to steal the joy of your call. To steal your moment of glory, of joy, of of celebration. This has happened to me on a lot of Easter Mondays. I've preached 32 Easter Sundays. And you get up there and you pour your heart out. You know that there's a lot at stake. You got people who aren't going to show up for another year. And man, you want them to hear the message that God loved them, that Christ died for them. And so you pour your heart out into it. And you hope that just some at least came to Jesus. You hope that some might come back and hear more of the story. But I cannot tell you how many Mondays I've awakened to a sense of despair and depression Wondering if I was equal to the task. Did I say the right thing? Did anyone respond at all? It just is, it's, it's the devil, I know it, stealing my joy. Stealing that, that moment. Satan loves to do that. He loves to swoop in on a person after a significant spiritual experience of dedicating their life to Christ or rededicating their life to Christ or, or being baptized. And the, the devil just wants to shake that loose from that person. There's a parable that Jesus talks about, the parable of the sower, remember? Where the sower throws seed out on the, on, the, on, the, on the path, and we are told that the birds come in and swoop it up, gobble it up, before it even has a chance to take root. Who are those birds? Jesus tells us who the birds are. It's the devil. It's Satan. The last thing Satan wants to do is to allow the gospel to take root in your life. The last thing that Satan wants is for you to hear God's call and be empowered by his spirit and launch yourself on a work that would change eternity. That's the last thing that the devil wants. We just had a weekend not long ago where nearly 30 people were baptized up here. And I wish I could interview every one of them because I'll bet here's what I would discover. That after they stood there in that moment and they made a proclamation of faith for Christ They were celebrated publicly, so they'd gone public with their faith in Jesus. I'll bet a bunch of them found themselves under attack the next day, questioning what they had done. Did I really mean it, what I said? Am I really saved? Is that baptism really going to take? Finding themselves under doubt, under fire, under attack. And that should not surprise you. 
The devil knows he's lost you. The minute you say yes to Christ, he's lost. But he would love nothing more than to strangle your Christian witness in its crib. So was this a work of the devil? Yes. Was it a work of God? Yes. Why? Because God wanted... God uses times of testing and temptation and trial to equip us, to strengthen us, to to refine us, to temper us so that we're better prepared for the work to which he has called us. It happens again and again in Scripture. Think about Moses. He was called, you know, he was called to follow God to to this great purpose, but he, he spent 40 years waiting in Pharaoh's court and then another 40 years languishing in the wilderness leading tending sheep and only then did God say all right 80 years I think you're ready to go think of Paul on the road to Damascus this dramatic encounter with God with Christ the risen Christ and so he's converted and he's ready to rock and roll immediately there's a group that tried to kill him and he has to escape with his life and then when he presents himself to the the Christian leaders they don't believe him they think he's a phony He has to actually hide for 14 years before God finally says, all right, enough of your wilderness. Now you are ready to go. And this has been true also in my life. Yesterday we uh, went to Presbytery and we celebrated Presbytery's concurrence with us that Pastor Ellis would become our new associate pastor for weekend services, and we also welcomed, the Presbytery welcomed Rachel White to be an inquirer, to be a candidate for for pastoral ministry. They will never forget moments like this. I remember the moment of my ordination when I knelt down in Bakersfield, oh, so many years ago. My parents who were there for service, they were there. My dad laid his hands on me as one of the elders. This, This sense of being done with seminary and ready to launch into my ministry, I was so excited. Shortly after that, I went to Scotland. And it turns out that Scotland was one of the loneliest seasons in my life. I felt so alone, so desolate. I also have never felt closer to God. Because I had nobody, I had nothing, I had only God. And there was a sense of intimacy there. And it was in that season, that sweet Scottish wilderness that the Lord prepared me to take a church whose name I did not even know. I was so young, so inexperienced, so arrogant, so cocksure. And that was after I'd gotten through Scotland and got here. Can you imagine the state you would have found me if God hadn't used that wilderness in Scotland to kind of kick some of that stuff out of me? I would not have been ready for the church that God wanted me to take until I had gone through a season of testing and pain and loneliness as I did in my beautiful Scottish wilderness. Mark doesn't tell us how Satan tempted Jesus. He simply says that he did. And it was only after that season of crisis that the call of Christ that came to him in the baptismal waters was finally confirmed. For we read that when John the Baptist was arrested, it was then that Jesus, having made his way out of the wilderness, made his way into Galilee and began to preach. The first words that come from his mouth, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And any listener would have known, oh, there's something different here. See, John's 
message was a message of repentance. He said, you're heading towards a cliff and you're going to get killed if you don't stop and turn around and come the other way. That was a great start. That was helpful. But only Jesus can come along and say something else. Repent and what? Believe. Repent and believe because there had not been a gospel to believe in yet. It's only when Jesus comes along that he can say, and not only do I want you to repent from something, I want you to turn from something. He says, I want you to turn to something. I want you to believe in something. I want you to believe in me, for I am the good news of God. And then Jesus was off and running. There it is, his call, his crisis, and his confirmation. And I think is a universal rhythm for followers of, of Christ. There's a sense of exhilaration in your call when you first sense that, that, that Jesus is real and you first receive him or you're renewed your commitment or you, you go through baptism. It's excitement. And then suddenly you find yourself in a crucible where the metal of your faith, the metal of your will is being tested and you don't know if you're going to make it. And then when you come out on the other side experiencing the witness and the power of the Spirit and the protection of God's angels, you come out on the other side and you begin to see the fruitfulness of ministry. Call, crisis, confirmation. I want to share something with you. I have uh, never wanted to share it before because it did not seem appropriate at the time. But I, I want to share it with you now. There's a sense for me in which the last 10 years of my ministry here have been kind of a wilderness. It might surprise you because there's many really great things that we have seen God do in our midst. But internally, in my heart, there was a sense of dryness and testing and and some pain. Part of it might have been the fact that I went through a seven-year lawsuit that sucked the life out of me. And I didn't know if I could continue. Another part of it was this. I realized that for 10 years there was an almost unbroken decline in our church. Almost unbroken decline. And I watched myself superintending the the loss of every year of more and more people. And I really reached a point a year ago where I thought, I cannot, either this has got to turn around or I've got to hand over the mantle to someone else because I don't know what to do. That was the place I was about a year ago. I, am really, I tell you this now because I'm delighted to be able to say that God in his mercy has brought me from a place of wilderness to a place of Galilee in this last year. For once again, we are seeing growth. Once again, we are reaching people for Christ in a way that we haven't for a, a long, long time. Once again, we are, are experiencing the fruit of the faithfulness of God. God is God. I don't know why he chooses to do the way he does. And I don't know why, how he used those 10 years. But I am convinced he used them to, to prepare me at least. I'm sure that he used it to make me more and more humble. I'm sure that he used it to remind me once again that it is not by your might or your power, but it is by the Spirit alone that anything like this will be accomplished. I'm sure that God used that to shape and to make me. But I'm telling you, it was a hard season of doubt, uncertainty, and and sometimes fear. I'm really glad to be on the other side of that. But I understand very well for those of you who might find yourself in such a place. And so I wonder if that's you. 
There might be some here today, I would ask, have you ever received the call of God? I mean, many of you, most of you probably have, but there might be some here who would have to say, I've never raised my hand and said, yes, Jesus, I'd love to follow you. And having followed him, have you been content to sit in the pew, sit uh, in the quietness of your own little religious corner and, and, and never dared to, to strike out on the thing that God might have called you to? Never dared to believe that there's a spirit that wants to fill you and give you power and there's a call to which you, you are, for which you are designed? Are you willing to? Have you said, yes, Jesus, whatever it is you would call me to do, I'm, I'm game. Maybe that's where you are right now. Maybe you're in the crisis moment. Maybe this is your wilderness. This is a time of testing, a time of trial. We had a sudden death this, just yesterday. There, death and, and cancer and, and all kinds, relational uh, destruction, all kinds of things that can just squeeze the life out of you where you wonder, I don't know if I can get through this. Is that where you are today? I mean, the, the, the great thing about it is if, if you're in a place of, of, of the call, you get to keep your head. If you're in a place of testing, you need to keep the faith because God is faithful. He will bring you through this. His, his spirit, his angels will bring you to the other side. And it could be that for some of you, you're at a place of just joy, of, of plenty, of harvest. And if that's you, then just keep it up. Keep it up. Relish the joy of this season because it, it's worth celebrating. I don't know where you are, but I'll bet every one of you, or at least in one of those places, one guy came out afterwards and said, can I be in all three places at the same time? I said, ah, God's not linear. I suspect he can work something like that too. I don't know where you are today, but we are reminded by the very story of Jesus himself that God is in and uses all of these moments of our life. So wherever you are, take heart. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Holy Spirit, thank you that you do not leave us alone in our profession of faith. Thank you that that the heavens are rent and you come upon us and empower us and fill us. You give us joy in our call. You sustain us in our crisis times and you delight us in the times of fruitfulness. And I just pray that you would meet every person today right where they are. For those who do not know you, Jesus, I pray this would be the day that they say, yes, why wouldn't I want to follow this, this master, this Lord? For those who have followed you, but only a little ways, I pray this might be the day to say, I know God's calling me to this and I've just been holding back. Lord, give me the strength and the courage to obey you. For those who find themselves in a, in a place of temptation and trial and struggle in the wilderness, would you please give them strength and courage to believe that you will minister to them, you will protect them, you will bring them out on the other side. And Lord, we just long for the season of fruitfulness where that which you have wrought in our lives begins to bear great fruit for the kingdom. I pray that for all of your people. I pray that for this group. Holy Spirit, touch us, fill us, fall upon us in power. For we ask it in Christ's name.